Hello, and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Sver Ogur. And my name is Thomas Simonsen Barmra. And today we are talking about Grave of the Fireflies from 1988 and directed by Isayo Takahata by Studio Ghibli. Based on the short story of the same name by Akiyuki Nosaka and voiced by Satsumu Satsumi as Seita, Ayano Shiraishi as Setsuku, Yushihiku Shinohara as Mother, and Akemi Yamaguchi as the aunt. So um, it's a pretty simple story. Actually, Isao Takahata commented that it's not a story per se, it's just about two children that died. And uh, it does pretty much sum it up. It's about wartime Japan. It's set towards the end of the war. Yes, it's set in the city of Kobe. It's about a young boy named Seita and his sister Setsuko. And it starts off by Seito sort of explaining that he died. Then he sort of, you see his story unfold. And it begins with Seita and Setsuko, his uh, little sister, who's around maybe five years old. And he's uh, high school age, about 15 maybe. And there is firebombing over Kobe. And his mother dies and he and his sister have to move uh, outside Kobe to uh, their aunt. And eventually she sort of gets sick and tired of him and uh, he decides to move alone with the sister into a cave. Basically. Yeah, yeah. In this short story, it's described as a cave. In the film, it's more like an abandoned bomb shelter or something. Yeah, it looks like a, some sort of shelter or mm. there's like some sort of wooden structure inside it with two exits. Anyway, he takes his sister there. He thinks, well, I'd rather make it on my own than live with my bitch of an aunt. And basically, his sister dies of malnutrition. And then you see the beginning of the movie where he dies. A very tragic tale, incredibly sad, and apparently Sao had great difficulty making this movie because nobody really would want to watch a movie that is this depressing. Yeah, there were actually several bids for adapting the short story, but uh, Nosaka felt that it couldn't be done at least live action, like if you can get children actors to do that. And he was very skeptical about how to like portray it visually with the landscapes burnt. And at some point he was introduced to the idea of doing it in animation. And he was really sold on that. So Takahata ended up making it in a fairly short amount of time. It's one of the earlier Ghibli films. It's from 88. So they've made two or three films and he's collaborated with Miyazaki a few times, both as producer and like they had a career doing like TV stuff. Yeah, they sort of came up together as animators and movie makers. And Miyazaki actually convinced Isao to go ahead with the project. Isao was very doubtful because there was a really short deadline and Mm. he also had more ambitious plans for the art style and such. But because the short deadline, he was sort of forced to use a more traditional animation mode of stylization. Mm. But Miyazaki basically told him, either you do this now or you're never going to do this project. It's not really a a very traditional anime project. It's not a very traditional anime subject for a movie. That's right. It's very dark. It's incredibly tragic. It's so tragic that, you know, he said it's just really difficult to get a movie like this done, especially in animation. Mm. Uh, And uh, Takahata was advised by a lot of people not to make it as well because it's... The idea was that you couldn't get audiences to go and see an animated film about this type of subject matter. For him, it was very personal because he actually grew up at the time and he experienced uh, the bombing of his hometown. Yeah, he was 10 in 1945. And he had to escape with his sister, actually. Yeah. Who got bad injuries and scars and That's such. right. Yeah, she was scarred for life. Although he was pretty much unharmed as far as I understand. Yeah. And the firebombing sequences in the beginning of the movie are actually much more based on his experiences of the actual bombings. Mm. Like the sort of weird tranquility of it. The way the bombs don't necessarily explode. They just sort of burn. And it yeah. seems like won't do much harm. It takes a while for the fires to start. It's this sort of weird liminal space. Yeah, because Nosaka as well. I mean, it was based on his experiences. He lived at that time and, you know, it's not autobiographical as such, but it has a lot of parallels to his own life, like his adopted sister. I mean, several of his family members died. His adopted sister died of malnutrition in a similar way. And he felt a lot of guilt about that. But he's described the the character Seita. He's a much more honourable type in a sense than he felt himself because during the war, he'd maybe been a bit more selfish and, you know, maybe ate some of the food that he should have shared with his sister and he felt really bad about that and it's, it's kind of lingered throughout his mind for many years before he wrote the story yeah he didn't just feel bad i think it was something he had to process through art and something he never really recovered for i think he left a piece of himself in those wartime streets he definitely wrote a more idealized version of himself 
the whole thing is sort of him processing his guilt and sort of trauma of those wartime experiences. And he did feel really guilty about it. And also he was... You know, in his career, he's often been sort of viewed as uh, not a bit of a buffoon, but he did a lot of like less serious stuff. But even when he wrote about more like pornography in his music career or whatever, these wartime experiences often seem to seep through even there. So he was deeply affected by this. Yeah, I haven't read so much. I've read this short story, but he seems like a really interesting author. He's done, as far as I can gather, he's done some of these wartime short stories that have kind of elements of fables and stuff and stories about whales falling in love with submarines. And there's often like a playfulness and he's done a fair amount of erotic literature as far as I understand yeah he seems to have a really varied career and he was a singer too I've actually heard some of his music it's pretty weird okay he's like in sort of a chanson like a sort of folk music storytelling sort of mode and he has a pretty weird voice like it's quite deep it's like a sort of talk singing yeah it's interesting the music is quite traditional like pop music almost well not pop maybe like folk pop and then he sort of talks sings over it it is melodious but yeah he like war was really seminal for him in developing his sort of character and personality as a creator he was in a very specific sort of age group for the war he considered himself part of the black market sect the war ruins black market sect which is like writers and thinkers born between 1929 and 1931. This is the translator of the short story actually talks about this in the sort of translator's notes at the end of the text. And basically it meant that he was too young to be drafted in the war, but he was old enough that he was considered a valuable worker. So he wasn't allowed to sort of take refuge in the countryside. He had to stay in the city. So he was like in a quite vulnerable position as a young boy, you know, turning into a man. And it also like that conflict is incredibly central to the story because he He's on this edge of not being a child anymore. So a lot of people want him to take great responsibility. But of course, during the trauma of war, it's kind of hard for everyone and some people just can't shoulder the burdens in the same way that others may be able to and he makes some choices that end up really badly for him and his sister and even so he's a very honorable person towards his sister he wants to protect her he really cares about her and there's one element that i think is perhaps easier for a japanese audience to understand than a western one and it's very culturally specific and that's when he leaves the aunt and they're struggling to get food and stuff and i think a lot of western audiences would have just said what well, doesn't just go back and live with his aunt again. Part of the reception of the film was this kind of, not criticism, but thoughts around this type of, I'm not sure, pride or personal dignity in terms of how it would be to go back. It's just very different, I think, in Japanese. Yeah, it's been talked about this movie, how the reception has been different in the West versus in Japan. But Isao also talks about how it's different generationally in Japan and how, you know, the generations that watched this movie as it came out, you know, which was in the late 80s, had a quite different reaction to it than he sort of would have thought. Because he initially sort of wanted the character of Seita to be more nuanced and to maybe he, he was expecting some criticisms of yeah. the choices that Seita made, especially the leaving the aunt and him sort of shouldering the entire responsibility of his sister and moving her out into this shelter, which ended incredibly badly, but he was too proud to go back to this aunt and sort of uh, beg to be taken in again. And that ended in catastrophe. But the audience who watched it basically just felt sorry for Seta and didn't see that as problematic at all in the same mode that Isao imagined they would. Yeah, as far as I understand, there's also the way Nosaka wrote the Seta character is a bit more in line with how he thought his contemporary audience would feel about being in that type of situation versus his own experience, which for him perhaps was a bit more selfish and desperate. So as far as I understand, Takahata kind of connected with that and he saw that as a parallel to, to like contemporary audiences. Yeah, I think that's one of the aspects that makes this movie more interesting than like a pure, almost idealized tragedy. There is nuance to it and he doesn't make all the right choices and he does sort of have some responsibility for what happens. Mm. Of course, it ends incredibly tragic. And, you know, in the short story, he sort of writes this character, which is sort of this avatar of himself, mm. off and kills him. And through that, like I imagine he would get some sort of catharsis for the entire process. Mm. And that's, 
I guess what's beautiful about this movie too, it does sort of work in this long tradition of tragedy as cleansing and this experiential process that makes you maybe see things in a new light, but also, I don't know, liberates you in a way by showing you the worst things that can happen. That's the thing that the film specifically does that's not in the book is that you have the spirits of the two kids both in the beginning and the end, as kind of liberated and free from the situation they're in and they're looking on what's happened. The short story, I think it's really good. It's very stark. It's very descriptive. It describes particulars of the situation very directly. And, you know, the opening passages are very good. You have uh, Sata in this train station leaning against a concrete pillar and he's basically unable to move. He has severe diarrhea and he's defecating quite strongly. And like the people around him are reacting with disgust. That element isn't so much in the film. I can understand that that would be like a, a difficult artistic choice to show like a yeah. like a starving child shitting himself. Yeah, in, in that sense, there are some even more difficult passages in the novel mm. than there is in the movie. Those things in particular make it even more realistic and yeah. horrible. And I can totally understand how in the 80s in Japan, that would be very difficult. Well, to even today, I can't like, imagine many films showing that. No, a, like I could see it in a motion picture, like a, a regular well, maybe real life movie. European art house. Yeah, like <laughs> some really heavy a European art house. Klimov could maybe make something like that, but but I don't think in 80s Japan you would be able to do this in animation. And even so, like the stuff you see in this movie, I haven't seen much of this kind of stuff since mm. in anime and animated movies. The war-torn bodies, the burns, the injuries, it's just really horrible. Yeah, yeah, the images of the mother is very striking. She's bandaged up, you see her lips and her eyes after she's been burned. You do see a little bit before this happens, because Mother is separated from the kids. She leaves for the shelter before they do. And when Seta comes to the school where the victims are placed, she's just basically a mummy that's very fragile. She can't speak, can't really communicate with her. And just the image of her is pretty shocking. Like it's... It's very shocking. It's shocking in the book. Mm. There's a description where it says like, you can only see parts of her, but like her nose is peeking out and it mm. looks like it's been tempura fried. And I'm actually intrigued by how well the movie translates mm. this these things because a lot of the details in the novel is actually in the movie like even tiny insignificant details that you wouldn't necessarily have to put in the movie yeah. are in the movie it's a really good adaptation of this very short story it's a very direct adaptation i'd say there's something of the form that's different as i said the story is very stark and the film is a bit more involved you know it's a beautiful film it looks and it's animated yeah it's gorgeous so like rich and beautiful and the way it uses music it's very kind of involving and exciting really to watch just purely on a visual level yeah, it does sort of, because the novel is so stark and simple, it does fill out a mm. lot of the details and complexities and sort of interpersonal yeah. scenes and, and dialogue that isn't really in the novel. He has some small observations, like there's a scene with a crab that crawls along and, and you see uh, Setsuku, she's kind of imitating it, which is beautiful detail that's not in the story. And it's also very reminiscent of Takata's other works, where he's often observing animal life and nature. And there's a very warm game towards like the rural and the non-human side of, of life in a way. Yeah. He is a very observant director in nearly all his work. He does have this uncanny ability to see stuff that most people probably wouldn't notice. And it's very well used in this adaptation mm. of, of the novel, which is very good, but maybe skips out a lot of details because it's not really necessary in the story. And also probably because it's maybe quite painful to write it mm. and recollect the things that are in the story. Sorry, but I really love how the movie builds on and really sort of makes the story work in animation. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of things that Isao has done that really work well visually and mm. story-wise, like this can of hard candy, for yeah, instance, yeah, the fruit that's thing. only mentioned once in the story. And uh, in the movie, it becomes almost this totemic sort of uh, iconic little object that represents something that's valuable to them. It represents their past, you know, mm. and something they're clinging on to through the entire story. And in the end, that's all that remains. Yeah, and it's really important for the relationship building or, you know, showing the relationship and showing like the love Seta has for his sister. And the film has a lot of joy as well. I mean, whilst the short story is very stark, the film is embellished with a lot of warmth and joy and 
the love between the brother and sister and this kind of also is very central to that aspect, I think. Yeah, for sure. The thing is that it's a lot more joyous and has a lot more happy scenes, but that sort of makes the bad stuff even worse, mm, in my mm. opinion. It's not like the movie is less horrible than a book, except in a few instances of some like the diarrhea stuff and, mm. and stuff you wouldn't be able to do in animation at that point. It's mm. still an incredibly dark and horrible story that really shows you how terrible war can be, even if you're sort of not actively fighting just the casualties of war in a way that's it's one of the things that we've talked about a lot and how i'm showing you what's unpleasant about war really can make a difference mm. in how you perceive it yeah i remember when i saw this i think this is probably the first uh, ghibli film i saw and it was a kind of an eye-opener because i hadn't really seen animation treated in this way it's not patronizing at all like it doesn't have the mode of like a, a disney movie that simplifies and exaggerates characters in that way it's willing to go not just dark places but like yeah he's often described as a humanitarian right uh, he has a very gentle and tender way of observing people and, and like just in the animation itself it's very elegant and just small movements and like observations of very details. true to life very true to life yeah a lot of small details that really bring the sort of verisimilitude of the entire tragedy of the thing into focus because mm. it really grounds the story mm. it feels very genuine in a way it really does. And I think all of his movies feel very genuine to yeah. me. He has this understated sort of mode of movie making that I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite movies of his is uh, Only Yesterday, which on the face of it seems like this sort of uh, coming of age, sort of almost romantic story. But it's actually quite intelligent and very observing and very understated and a very beautiful movie in its mm -hmm. own right. Very human. He is a very humanistic movie maker just because I don't know there's there seems to be this sort of innate compassion and empathy that just flows through everything he does the tale of Princess Kaguya to also an incredibly just observant and understated and beautifully made he really does seem to have a grasp of understanding humans and sort of their relation to the world around them I mean, he's a he's an amazing director, and I mean, his name isn't as widely known as Miyazaki. He hasn't been as prolific. He hasn't made as many movies. Though Kaguya, I think, was pretty widely shown, and it's pretty well known. And you know, these days Netflix has like the rights list a lot of places for showing a lot of these Ghibli movies, so they're much more readily at hand. I haven't seen Only Yesterday, but I think that's kind of still in the mode of Grave of the Fireflies. It's pretty realistic in its style, right? Yeah, it's pretty traditionally animated, but yeah. also very beautiful and a lot of, like, very true-to-life small mm. details about daily life that really sort of ground the story and really makes it feel so true-to-life, mm. even though it's animated. But I think part of what you said about Miyazaki probably being a lot more, you know, he is a lot more known, but I think a lot of it is because Sao's movies are so understated and often tranquil and, mm. and not flashy in a way that really serves them well. Mm. But it maybe doesn't make for the same sort of spectacle of movies like Howl's Moving Castle and mm. Spirited Away and stuff like that. Which yeah, they're are, an easier sell. Uh, yeah, yeah, totally. They're like adventures. Mm. Whereas these movies are not really adventures. They're very human. Yeah, they feel mm. more grounded and not so fantastic, you know. Mayor, you, you have My Neighbors, the Amadas, which is when he starts to really break up his style, it's much more impressionistic. You can see the pencil strokes clearly. It has a lot of white spaces, undefined surroundings, just with lines and splotches of, you know, watercolor. And it's observations of daily life. It's a family, the Yamadas. It's divided into these short segments of like father-son relationship or the daughter is missing or biker gang is making noise outside the house and how they're dealing with that. And it's very funny. It's very gentle. It's, it's really beautiful. Definitely recommend it. But, you know, I think the tale of Princess Kaguya, which is the last film he made before he died in 2018. Kaguya is from 13 or 14, I think. I think that's just a perfect movie. It's amazingly beautifully made and there's so many aspects of it. I mean, it's at the opposite end of the type of movie we usually talk about. Like it's a completely, it doesn't have that unpleasantness. Uh, it's a very pleasant movie. Yeah. Well, pleasant is not the right word. It's it's quite tranquil and quite, I like the word you used, gentle. I think mm. that, that describes a lot of his movies and approach to movie making. He's a quite gentle director mm. in the best way possible. Mm. And yeah, that movie is such an amazing movie to have made as your last 
movie and to have made in general, but I think you can see a clear line of themes and, and mm. ways of approaching storytelling that really reflect in, in The Grave of the Fireflies too. Definitely. Like you see a lot of the same mm. human tendencies. Yeah, throughout his career, he's been very concerned with families and relationship between families. And Grave of the Fireflies is his most vulnerable and, you know, I'm not sure if it's fair to say personal, but it's definitely, he takes a lot of his own history into that film and his own experiences. And, you know, the way he animates children, I mean, at the point of Princess Kaguya, all those animators there are super professional and he's... They're godly. The technical um, or the artistic style that he's developed, like with a pencil that you can see very clearly, some of the action scenes where you have really rough lines and the frame rate is less so that it's like a harsher montage of images. He's just perfected that to an insane degree. Yeah, he uses the medium. He wants you to see the medium Mm. differently at various points. But you see tendencies in Grave of the Fireflies as well. As you said, he had wanted to be more ambitious but he didn't really have the time, so he's doubting whether or not he should do it. Like the outlines of the characters, they're drawn with a brown column, unlike the traditional black, which gives it kind of a, a gentler, more natural feel in a way. And as far as I understand, it's slightly more difficult. It's just easier to animate with a dark color. But that's that's a very distinct choice. And it, it has a lot of those you know, small choices that just really yeah. serve it well. And it does feel very much like Takahata's style, even mm. though it's more traditional. Like mm. his movies really feel feel like his work. And I think it's very well like that sort of contrast with Miyazaki's movies is very well summed up in the release of this movie, which was a double feature with uh, My Neighbor Totoro, which are so different, both really great. But, you know, one is such a sort of optimistic movie and the other one is just so brutal. And I love how Isao talks about the sequence of watching it really made the audiences react differently. Mm. If they watched Totoro first and then saw Grave of the Fireflies, they would usually walk out. Yeah, but yeah. if they watch Grave of the Fireflies first, mm. they would sit through the entire double mm. feature. That's very interesting. It's hard to watch, you know, and especially it's the kind of thing that many people wouldn't expect from an animated film that it allows itself to depict children suffering, right? It's always hard to watch. You know, Totoro is such a playful and, you know, it has a, a fantastical universe that kind of interacts with the real world and it's so optimistic. And, and it's a happy ending. Um, yeah. It's uh, like it has the sick mother, but there's redemption in it. In Grave of the Fireflies, the redemption is sort of death and them reuniting a spirit, mm. which does not happen in the novel. Mm-hmm. That's more of a storytelling sort of way of, of showing a certain sort of catharsis for these characters, mm. which works well in the movie. I mean... Yeah, in, how do you feel about that? Because I'm not sure the film actually needs that element. I think it's sort of a product of its time. Like mm. the, the, the time the movie was made in, in like 80s Japanese animation. I guess they felt they had to sort of put some sort of softening the blow of the yeah. gruesome tale. And in a sense, it doesn't really do it because they're dead. There's little comfort in it, except like a sort of, I guess, storytelling denouement or whatever you... A framework. Yeah, like they're still two dead children and mm-hmm. that's that's the story, right? Like in the end, they sort of toss away the bones of the sister like it's trash. That's the start of the movie. Mm. So even with those sort of spirit elements, I think that's just sort of a way of softening the blow a bit. I'm not sure they're necessary. Do they bother me? Not not really. Mm. I think it's a really, really good movie. Yeah, it's great. And I never want to see it again. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I hadn't seen it for many years. I was very happy to see it again. Especially in light of, of his other films, which I've been catching up on recently. Yeah, I mean, it's just so sad. It's just so sad. Yeah. Like I cry every time I watch yeah. that movie. Well, it's a beautiful and human and like such great storytelling and uh, a good period piece too. Like it shows a very specific yeah. time and place mm. and a very specific situation. But still, it's just emotionally draining on me to watch this movie. Mm. Because you're watching two children basically starve to death. Mm. And uh, even though it's interspersed with lighter moments and human touches and humor and stuff, it's just really brutal. It's one of the most brutal movies we've discussed, actually, in Unpleasant Movies. Because it's brutal on a different level than a lot of the movies we discuss, which don't usually involve children. Mm. Some of them do. And, of course, a lot of people find that very difficult, me included. But this is just... It's not even just regular terror. It's like wartime terror. It's like this this whole situation that is sort of outside sources 
forcing them into a lot of unpleasant situations mm. through no fault of their own, really. A lot of external forces. And it's just so like it's watching a tidal wave you can't stop. It's really brutal. It has a lot of nice subtleties as well between characters, like this relationship with the aunt. Initially, she's very welcoming. I'm not sure if she's their actual aunt. She's a relative. She's she's also described as a distant relative. Like, I don't think she's like her mother's sister. No, she's the wife of their mother's cousin or something. No, their father's cousin. It's uh, not a very close family, familial tie. And, you know, initially she's welcoming and understanding, but there's a gradual shift and she starts to become really impatient with them and she keeps subtly hinting at, you know, they're being too greedy, you know, they're they're taking too much space, they're making too much noise. They're not she's doing not, enough work, they're not pulling yeah. their weight. She's not empathizing. Like when initially Sata, he keeps the mother's death secret from his sister because he's worried about how she'll take it. And when she later on reveals that she knows when he breaks down in the desert, that's a tough moment. I mean, that's so sad. It's horrible. I don't think I've seen sadness animated as well. It's not just well animated, it's well voiced act, actually. Yeah. The, the voice actor for Satsuko is actually interesting. She was mm. five years old and they had auditions in the region to find a voice actor with the specific dialect, the Kansai dialect. And they were initially interviewing older children a few years older, but uh, she just was perfect in Isao's eyes. And uh, she did very well. Of course, her being so young, they, mm. she couldn't really do... Like in those days, you would uh, do the voice acting after the animation was done. Mm. But because of her age, they had to record the lines first and then sort of fit the animation around it. But it lends a very, like, very naturalistic voice acting to this young child. Yeah. And I'm fascinated that he as a director insisted on having an actual young child Mm. for this part because it it lends a realism to it that Mm. is so central to him as a director and it really feels like a choice he would have to make. And it makes the acting, which is already great and beautifully animated, so much better because it feels human and it feels real. I mean, it's easy to forget, but a lot of times kids are voiced by adults or young teenagers or something. Not just often, but most of the time. Yeah, that's very common because it's really hard to direct kids and like a child that young, they couldn't really write dialogue for her to repeat. Uh, they had to kind of have a more fluid approach and they would kind of adapt a little bit. As far as I understand, they also reanimated some elements to suit her. She would take longer in mm. a delivery of a certain line and they would have to animate longer, for instance. Like they couldn't ask for specific lengths of That's takes, right. for instance. Yeah. And, you know, kids get really easily bored and their attention is shorter. But as you say, you know, it's so well done. It, yeah. It's going that extra mile to really give the story the Mm. the attention and detail it deserves. Mm. It feels much more vulnerable this way because you can tell that it's a child and that makes it harder to watch. (laughs) Yeah, it's like we're going to kill a child in this movie, so we better have a real child (laughs) to kill, you know, to make it extra, extra brutal. And it is. And it's horrible. And she does a great job. She sounds supernatural. And all the voice actors actually do a great job. Mm. Um, not sure how the American stuff is, but yeah. I haven't seen the dubbed mm. versions. and I, I'm not snobbish about it. I'm sure there are great dubs, but I, I just prefer to see it as it was intended originally. Yeah. Because mm. a lot of things like dialects and I'm not sure I can pick up like specific rural Japanese dialects from each other, but If there is an intention there, even if you can't pick out the specifics, you can still feel like there's a vibe in terms of it feels grounded in their place and in the character. I think you can. But yeah, I think the aunt is an interesting character. She's worse in in the novel, I think, because there's subtle sort of human moments where they're in the movie that aren't there in the book. In the story, she's not very, there's not a lot of descriptions of her and Mm. it's more like what she does. In this story, she, it's described how their family sort of had this agreement that if something happened to one of their houses, they would move in with the other. Mm. This is not in the movie. Mm. So it's not described that way but there's more detail in the sort of interaction she has with the children and initially Mm. she seems kind of nice you know it's wartime times are difficult but she's making the best of it Mm. but the way she sort of scams them is really horrible because you can tell that she's also in a, a difficult situation it's difficult for everybody but she's so small and unempathetic it's uh, not that difficult for them like they have food that yeah. she just doesn't want to share with yeah. the children she gives bigger portions with actual meat and stuff to mm. her children and then the orphans they get sort of watery soup with some leaves in it instead mm. and she I, keeps implying like that you have other relatives but they don't have a contact with them yeah with it's it. kind of disgusting yeah. it's interesting 
because there was actually a live action movie made of this in 2005, I think. Yeah, I heard and, about that. And it focuses more on the daughter of this aunt. The it's focus, from her perspective, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, the focus is more about how a good woman can turn into this character we see in the original story and in mm -hmm. the original movie, where she is very sort of unsympathetic. Of course, wartime is difficult. Maybe she becomes more selfish to protect her family or whatever. Like, there are probably reasons for it, but she does not come off well in the story no. at all. And I can imagine Nosaka Akiyuki probably had some bad experiences like that during the war because of the character he decided to write. And maybe he wasn't quite fair to her. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, she's not a, an actual person that he's representing directly. No, of course, yeah. but you know, the author, he moved to his family and yeah. his sister died mm. during that stay. So clearly something happened yeah. there. And I can imagine that he used that to process it and maybe make her seem worse and him seem better mm. as a way of resolving himself of guilt or whatever. I can imagine that. I don't know anything about that. But but it's one of the real strengths of Takata, I think, because he shows, doesn't make anyone now to be a monster or an antagonist. And, you know, when... When the film starts off and the bombs are fallen, like, there's a lot of people, they're showing concern and they're asking where they can go and they're helping them out. And even in the later stages of the film, like, you have this scene where Sata is, I mean, they have some money, but it's difficult to trade and stuff. Their money is pretty useless. Yeah, so he starts to steal from some farmers. At one point he gets caught and this farmer beats him pretty viciously and takes him to a police officer, insisting that he should go to jail. Even though he can see the younger sister screaming and he tells, I have a young sister, she's sick. And uh, he doesn't give it a damn. But he takes it to the police and this officer is is a much more nuanced than, you know, it's not as if he directly helps him, but he doesn't take him to jail and he, he kind of sympathizes a bit more. So it has these more gentle figures in a way. It that, has a lot um, of sympathetic and human figures mm. I think what's interesting is that just a lot of them just don't have the capacity to do much and that makes you know a lot of these characters that probably would be incredibly helpful if they had anything to give mm. or do they just don't have the capacity for it and even the characters that like the, this farmer who beats Seta he I'm not sure he's bad. Like there are people stealing his food that he's grown in a time where food is scarce. Like this mm. is his livelihood. Yeah. Of course he would be incredibly angry. Does it justify it? No, but it does sort of explain it. Like mm. the characters are very human and mm. believable. It's not like they're these two-dimensional villains. Mm. There are no real villains in the story. The real villain in the story is war, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting because he doesn't really antagonize the Americans either. There's no focus really. You never really, you see the planes and you see the bombs but it doesn't lean into like an enemy or that's not really part of the picture at all. Uh, no, I know part of his own feelings was that Japanese imperialism caused this. And mm. I know he was going to be more explicit about this in the sequel that was planned for the movie. And that's Takahata. Yeah, I know there was some anti-imperialist sentiments there. Unfortunately, the sequel didn't get made because of Tiananmen Square, because it was going to be set in Manchuria, I think, and focusing on this young soldiers fighting against the imperialist powers. But then, as Tiananmen Square happened, public perception against China really went to hell, and so the sequel didn't get made, which is sad. I think it would have been a very interesting movie. That's more of a spiritual sequel, as I understand. It's based on another book by a different author, but similar themes, maybe. Yeah, basically. Basically, it would be a spiritual sequel. Uh, I mean, what you do, but it should it be a prequel, like showing their regular life. You, you can't do that. They're dead and they're children. So you have to focus on something else. And I think tying it in with this war theme would be both an obvious way of going about it. And I think it would be super interesting to see his take on that sort of conflict. This film is, uh, it's amazing, right? And as I said, it's one of the films that really let me see animation in a much more serious light. Like, yeah, I think for a lot of people, it's sort of one of those eye-opening movies mm -hmm. you watch that make you realize, damn, animation can be so much more than it usually is, especially in the West, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of shorter animation that deals with, you know, weirdness and difficult themes, but as features... You know, they're usually thought of as, as kids' entertainment. Even if not explicitly, then on some level, that's the basis. Yeah, there is a divide there, of course, between Japan there and the rest of the world when it comes to animation. It's mm. been considered a more serious, you know, medium or a more
more like universal medium than it has been in the West. Yeah, like uh, comics and animation. That has definitely been changing a lot the past yeah. decades yeah. in the West, but yeah. still there is this sort of unspoken sense that animation is more for children than for grown-ups, even with the sort of onslaught of stuff like Bojack Horseman and mm. Rick and Morty and whatever, stuff that aspires to be a bit more cerebral or whatever, even if it doesn't necessarily hit the mark. There is a lot of more serious animation being made only the past 10 years. And also, you know, in the outer scene of short animation, a lot of that stuff, I mean, you can find some stuff on Vimeo. So if you go to animation festivals, like there's a really good one in Hiroshima and Annecy, that's where you'll discover a lot of this stuff and stuff that's willing to break the borders. But again, it's not mm. often feature length. Often really? the more sort of unpleasant mm. and more serious or more extreme stuff, it's often shorter. Mm. But I would say there's a distinction between this film and a lot of the films we talk about in this podcast. Even though we don't really have a canonized theory of what an unpleasant is or isn't, I'd say this film isn't... It's not that unpleasant. I mean, it's really sad and it has some quite brutal imagery. It doesn't really challenge you as a spectator through its form and through its themes. It doesn't have a kind of deep-seated ambiguity that a lot of the films... I kind of disagree. I think there is definitely ambiguity in the movie. The main place where it does is through the medium of animation because it it allows it to go somewhere animation doesn't want to go. But I I think Takahata, he's not so interested in challenging us as a spectator in that mode that a lot of the films we typically talk about do. It's kind of a a different project and much closer to a tragedy, just a really stark and direct tragedy. Yeah, I totally agree. And this is why I mentioned tragedy earlier. It really does have that almost classical tragedy and sense of doom because it starts with their actual doom. And it does do a lot of classical, you know, tragedy ways of storytelling. And I agree, it doesn't really, it's not really to challenge you. It's more like an understanding and respect of the spectator. Mm. In contrast to a lot of movies we see where there is a lot more ambiguity sort of in relation between the director and the spectator intentionally, mm. you know, used as a tool. And there isn't that sort of tension in that way because there is a true sense of understanding and empathy between him as a director and you as a viewer mm. experiences this movie, at least for me. Mm. And also knowing his other work, you know, that yeah. really brings it even more home, I think. Yeah, definitely. His other work is very far from like the realm of the unpleasants. I would say. Yeah, it's weird because this movie is sort of pleasant, even if it's quite horrible. But speaking a bit of ambiguity, like I I think there's actually several levels of ambiguity in this movie. And some of it is due to the choices that Seda makes that lends some of the guilt on him. Mm. But not just that. I feel like the central theme of the movie is pretty ambiguous because making a movie about children dying is Mm. really difficult. And as a movie making project, I do feel like that is it's not easy like i do feel Mm. like that's difficult and ambiguous in itself so like as a project like what do you want from this movie you could view it as like an anti-war movie explicitly he said it's not yeah but i can understand how some people might feel it or think that's the theme of it but it's way more human than that and it's way more like it doesn't really deal with those grand themes it's Mm. so much more about the interconnectedness of family and experiencing trauma and hardship on that incredibly personal level like you might say there's this meta theme of war but those are externalities that aren't really central to the interconnectedness of the characters in the movie Mm. yeah i thought maybe i'd just quote takahata he denied that it's an anti-war film and in his own words it's not at all anti-war anime and contains absolutely no such message instead he intended to convey an image of a brother and sister living in a failed life due to isolation from society invokes sympathy particularly in people in their teens and in general, he apparently was quite sceptical depictions of suffering in similar works like Barefoot Gen, which is about Hiroshima bomb survivor, and like the aggressiveness in those films. But he was an anti-war advocate and, you know, supported several causes and openly criticised war sentiments and, and that sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, imperialism. He was critical of that. Mm. But I think his focus really was on this sort of choice to mm. go beyond the connectedness of society mm. in a way. And I think he was very critical of that. And like we discussed a bit earlier, he was very surprised that people didn't seem to pick up on that in the mm. same way that he probably found very mm. natural in the way that you can't live isolated. And he 
felt at that time the movie came out that that was very much the mode of living at that time that people wanted to just live by themselves mm. in isolation just do things by themselves in a way that is really you know far from the way more interconnected ways of living in earlier Japan mm. where family and uh, the local environment and society really played a much bigger role and you can see it in in the early parts of the movie how many people sort of try to help and are yeah. positive and really you don't know who they are and and give them you know small helps here and there and as soon as they sort of distance themselves from all of that like even their mm. aunt things just go very bad mm. very quickly i guess my thoughts around it has to do with um, the use of the spirits of the kids towards the end and in the beginning as you say they have like a redemptive quality we're not allowed to stay in the space of despair in a way he softens the blow and i think you're right that's a product of the time but maybe takahata would have liked to do that still because he tends to go for i get the feeling he doesn't want to condemn us as viewers in a way that a lot of the other directors we're talking about are more than willing to do like he he doesn't want to um, put us on spikes even though he wants us to know and to see and to learn totally and that's how i feel about incorporating uh, you know the, the sort of spirit sequences and stuff i don't think it's because he's sentimental or because of any sort of thoughts like that it's because mm. he cares about the viewer of mm. the story he really does he cares about the viewer and he doesn't want to expose you to unnecessary pain and suffering like mm. you do see a lot of pain and suffering in this movie but mm. it's not unnecessary it's mm. necessary for the story and i am reminded of only yesterday which also has a quite happy ending it mm. wouldn't necessarily have to have that it would be a quite good movie if it ended sadly but i think he just doesn't want to like a lot of directors we talk mm. about he doesn't want to torment the audience mm. he doesn't want to put you in that space of the movie sort of making you feel terror like embodying terror he doesn't want to do that to you as an audience he wants you to experience these stories and think about stuff but he does it in a very very gentle way yeah you know I, i think it's a tragedy right and he wants you to feel sad but he doesn't leave you in that place of ambiguousness that's kind of a push and pull that's kind of tearing at you and leaving you in a space where you feel like i gotta i mean in one sense you do because it's it's heavy thematically but in a different way like it's more akin to a, a tragedy to me at least And I think actually the one film of his that I've seen that leaves you in a proper ambiguous space is actually Princess Kaguya. Yeah. And the ending of that, spoilers, the character who's kind of a spirit that's come from the moon, when she returns, you know, she transforms like the host of the godlike or spiritual beings from the moon, they come down and they they get her back and when she puts on a coat she has to forget everything from the world and you know her parents are really sad and she's really sad and these godlike beings they're so cold they're so statue like there's a weirdness to them and they're completely removed from human issues right and when she transforms into that herself and when they leave there's a deep ambiguity in one sense yeah she belongs there that's who she is and that was the fate that was always coming and you know throughout the film she's been struggling back and forth with fitting into human life right she is in a sense a foreigner and but she has been deeply involved with human life yeah. and there are humans that care very much about her yeah. so i actually love the ending and yeah. it's so ambiguous like there's this deep ambiguity to divinity and mm. spirits mm. and this sort of stark contrast to humans with their frail minds and foibles and the ending like is kind of horrible actually like there's this almost um cosmic horror to it i know uh, what you mean i wouldn't say no no I not mean, cosmic horror like hp lovecraft no. but there's a maybe terror or unease about the divinity yeah spiritual horror like uh. there's this sense of unease about humanity mm. or um, what it means to be human like it's so it's so interesting and it mm. really makes you think like of all the endings of his movies i think it's really the one that makes you think a lot about mm. how it ended because yeah. other movies are great when you think about them but you know don't necessarily think about the ending so much yeah it has a very meditative and reflective it puts you in a space of wondering and examining and i think grave of the fireflies doesn't do that as much i mean it's not invested in that type of exploration 
it's bookended neatly. Yeah, and it's almost journalistic. Like if mm. you read the story, it's yeah, so yeah, yeah. just directly described. Mm. And the movie does take a lot more storytelling elements mm. to it. But you know, ultimately, it is a very human story, and yeah. it's very just realistic and down to earth. And it's not really trying to overtly, you know, make you think about some sort of uh, grand themes or whatever. It's quite a small story mm. of mm. tragedy and loss. It's not moralistic. It doesn't bear ethical message in that sense. It doesn't implore you to judge in any way. And, you know, you use the word sentimental just now, which I think it, it hits on a good point because, you know, Takahata, he has a lot of sentiment in his film, but he's never sentimental. And a lot of animation tends to be very sentimental. It has a patronizing and very almost controlling way of presenting characters and situations where now you're supposed to feel this yeah. and that. Which I, I struggle with. Typically, I find that off-putting. Yeah, I unequivocally agree with that. I mean, one thing that's really good about his movies is that he takes his characters very seriously mm. as humans. Mm. And he portrays them not as good or bad, but extremely complex individuals in a way that I find very appealing. And it stops his movies from becoming sentimental. Because he's so genuine. He understands people. He cares yeah, about people. Like even the people who act badly in his mm. movies, they're still people. Yeah. And, and they have motivations and concerns. And that's very similar to Miyazaki. As far as I understand that he inspired Miyazaki to have a much more humanistic perspective. And Miyazaki doesn't have villains in that sense. Even the more problematic characters they're empathized with. Yeah. They're given space to be people. I think that's one of the really beautiful things about Ghibli movies in yeah. general. They yeah. are very human and complex mm. in terms of characters and how they interact with each other. And even though a lot of them are super fantastical and grand, it really grounds them and, and makes them feel more real in a way mm. that, you know, Isao's movies does. But in Miyazaki's, you know, the trappings of the movie are often a lot more grand and fantastical. Yeah. But it really does boil down to the same thing. It's not patronizing. It's not sentimental. Mm. They have such a beautiful camaraderie, these two filmmakers. They've been supporting each other. They built the studio together. It's really inspiring to have these figures. I don't know if there are many comparable... Like, I mean, I suppose you could talk of Joel, Ethan Cohen, the brothers. They always work together in that sort of sense. And you have other director pairs, but... Not it, necessarily it, because, yeah, the Coen brothers work on their movies. That's right. It's uh, different here because they're collaborating. They also have their individual projects. It's yeah, a very special thing. Yeah, yeah, Takahata and Miyazaki, like they have their own movies, their mm. own like thing. They're very well known for. Mm. They're extremely respected and for very good reasons. Mm. And they often collaborated and, and you know, they, they built their company together. And mm. it's just such a almost unique mm. uh, artistic collaboration. And it's created a lot of beautiful works of art. Yeah, it's very inspiring, I think. And it's uh, sad that he died. Yeah, it is. But what a high night to die on. Yeah, truly. I would say. You know, one of the other films that we're, we're often praising is Come and See by Alan Klimov, who's also like the last film he made. And I feel like Princess Kaguya is similarly it's just a perfect send off. It's like the artistic high point. And, you know, few people are able to transcend in their creative endeavors to that level. Totally. And I would say there's more commonalities. I mean, the way Grave of the Fireflies mm. humanely and realistically and non-patronizingly show scenes of war and mm. the effects of war is really, both of those directors really do that in a way that you very rarely see. Mm. Like it's so mm. rare and so well done. So, you know, hats off to Takata. He's one of a kind and he will be missed. Thomas, tell me, do you have any recommendations for us this day? I do. It is a short story written by Leslie Nenka Arima. I came across it through a podcast that I've mentioned before, New Yorker Fiction, where they invite authors to pick a story from their archive, read it, and they discuss it. Great uh, podcast. It's very good. This time it was Zizi Packer who wants to talk about the short story, Who Will Greet You at Home? And this is, um, it's an amazing short story, really. I was really taken aback by it. It's kind of folkloric. It's in this space of a world that's, you know, has a lot of metaphors that they're not so easily deciphered. The protagonist, Ogechi, 
she's manufacturing a baby using yarn and all different materials and uh, hair uh, from the saloon she's working at. And What's uh, the setting of this? Story? Well, it, it's kind of difficult to tell initially because it is in a space that's a little bit ambiguous. I thought I wouldn't say so much about like the story and those elements, but it's a very, it's such a rich tapestries of ideas and sensory details and like a wounded core, uh, this character. There's a lot of sadness and difficulty and what are the rules of this story? Not so easily deciphered to begin with, but it's it really, it's great, you know. And the reading is really good. And the discussion they have in the New York Fiction podcast is great. That's one of the strengths of that podcast is, you know, you have authors and they've picked this short story for a reason and they've got something to say. And the curator, Deborah Treisman, is also really interesting. So they typically have great discussions. And, and this one, both the story and the discussion is really good. So highly recommended. Read it or listen to it. Who will greet you at home by Leslie Nenka Arima. Beautiful. Amazing. Did they ever find who will greet you at home? Well, I'm not going to reveal it here. <laughs> How about you? Do you have a recommendation for us? Yes, I do. So I've been watching a lot of Bergman lately, like Igmar mm. Bergman. Mm. And uh, I saw this movie and I hadn't watched it before. It's called Through a Glass Darkly. Mm. It's part of this sort of loosely described trilogy of movies. Mm. But it's about this woman and her, her author, father, has come home from Switzerland and she's struggling with uh, schizophrenia and her husband has issues with this. He's treating her uh, and it's all about the relationship between the father, uh, his son-in-law, which is almost at his own age, this woman and her uh, brother. And uh, just the interpersonal drama of this is so tense and difficult and deeply psychologically observant. It's so good mm. uh, and played incredibly well, mm. you know, by Harriet Anderson and Gunnar Björnström. You know, he's one of my all-time favorite actors. Mm. He's so good in this movie. Mm. And Max von Sydow, of course, and Lars Poskorp. And... Um, I don't know. I don't want to describe much more of the plot, but a lot of interesting stuff happens. And it's so well played, written and just uh, beautiful and unpleasant. Yeah, this is one of my all time favorite Bergman films. It's kind of a quartet. You have these four actors. They're in an island location and you have kind of the drama stuff and the way they deal with her schizophrenia. It becomes... You know, it doesn't go into like the very avant-garde space that Bergman sometimes does, but it allows itself to break expectations still. And it's beautifully shot. It yeah, looks so... I think it's one of the first movies he uses uh, Sven Nyquist mm. as a cinematographer. And it's so beautiful. Mm. It's, the setting is so good. I think it was the first movie shot on the photo where he ended up living and shot a lot of his movies, Persona and, yeah. and stuff. And the setting is just, yeah. And it's so beautiful, so well acted, mm. deeply, deeply troubling. And I, I think the way it deals with schizophrenia at that time yeah, is yeah. so interesting and good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you say, psychologically, it has depth, it has nuance, and it's amazingly portrayed. Like yeah. It's one of the classics of how to deal with mental illness. Yeah. Um, just so good. Yeah. yeah. That's my recommendation. And just, just watch it if you haven't already. Yeah, it's, it's great. Next episode, we're going to talk about another animated film called The Plague Dogs, based on the book by Richard Adams, better known for Watership Down. I would claim that this is the better story and the better movie. If you haven't seen it, check it out. You're going to love it. It's really good. And I'm so much looking forward to talking about it. And you know, Watership Down is probably one of those movies that as a child that you find most unpleasant. So it's interesting to see. Yeah, I think that's going to be a great conversation. Anyway, um, that's it for now. The music for this episode was made by Emilium. That's Jus Garning and Svara Ogod. The artwork for the series is made by me, Thomas Simonson Balmbra. You can get in touch with us through email unpleasantmovies at protomail.com. You can check out our Instagram. That's just unpleasantmovies at Instagram. You can also see a list of films that we deem unpleasant on Mubi. That's just, you know, find your lists on Mubi and type in unpleasant movies. And, you know, that's it for now. So, um, take care. Keep it easy. Bye-bye.